Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 31. I'm going to call this section of Scripture, Jesus and His Church are one body. Now, the context is this. In the first 13 verses of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul has sort of given an introduction to charismatic gifts, speaking gifts, prophecy, tongues, and so forth, words of wisdom, words of knowledge. And it seems to me that what he's doing, he's trying to say, look, I agree with all this. I'm telling you how it all is, but I'm going to start talking about how you administer these gifts because you're screwing it up and how you are actually practicing these gifts. And the main problem was is that the that some people who had the more public gifts were stomping on the ones who had gifts that were not so public and not so obvious. So we begin now in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14. So the body is not one part, but many. So here Paul is trying to push against the Corinthians, uniting under one factional leader to the exclusion of everyone else. Remember, he complained in the first chapter. Some say they're of Paul. Some say they are of Cephas. Some say they are of Apollo. But we're all belong to Jesus, and so let's quit dividing up. So he's saying the body is not one part, not one faction, but but many parts. Everybody contributes to the body of Christ. There's no division. All are important. And he's going to use his famous body metaphor to show that. So we read that in verse 1 Corinthians 12, verses 15 through 20. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, in spite of this, it still belongs to the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, in spite of this, it still belongs to the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed each one of the parts in one body, just as he wanted. One body. Paul emphasizes that one, that unity. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? Now there are many parts, yet one body. Again, he emphasizes the one body, the unity. Now let's take, this This metaphor is obvious here, but let's just take two parts that Paul mentions here. Let's take the foot. The foot is a lowly part of the body. It's lowly. It treads the dust, as John Gill says. But hey, without a foot, what a mess the body would be in. The body would not be able to stand or walk. Reminds me of these old science fiction movies. I've seen one. It's really great. It's got about a, a head that got preserved by a scientist. Somebody had lost their life, but the head was preserved. And so the head was sitting in a jar on a table, and it would talk and think. And it could do anything a brain could do, except it just couldn't move. It was worthless. <laughs> Almost worthless, I should say. All right, well, what's one of the, another part of the body that Paul mentions here is the eye. That's one of the superior sense organs. But now if all the body could do was see, the body simply could not function, just like that head in a jar on a table in that science fiction movie. Now notice in verse 18, God has placed each one of the parts in one body just as he wanted, just like he made the human body so we could all function together. Well, the human body is sort of like a, like a metaphor for the church body. God made them both, and he means for everything to function together smoothly, just as the body miraculously, the parts of a body miraculously function together. It says he put all those parts in one body just as he wanted. So he manifests his gifts in meetings as he desires. The meeting is not a place for us to showcase our gifts. Oh, showcase our gifts. Oh, this is wonderful. I get a chance to prophesy or I get a chance to teach. No, the purpose is to edify the body, to build up the parts of the body. And if it means you keep your mouth shut one meeting, you keep your mouth shut. Or if it means you have to step to the fore one meeting because of your particular gift, you step to the fore and do your duty. 
The focus should be on the Holy Spirit distributing each gift in the in the meeting as he wills in order to build up. And the purpose of all this, of course, is to build up the body in maturity until it reaches the head. This idea that one body has many parts, but it's still one body. Paul's already mentioned this in the first part of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, he says this, For as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. Jesus' body, his church body, he's the head. We are the many parts of the body, and we're all important. 1 Corinthians 12, 14, So the body is not one part, but many. Actually, I've already read that. We go now to verse 21 and 22 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. But even more, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are necessary. Take a thumb, for example. You ever try to do anything without a thumb? I'll never forget in seventh, my seventh grade science class, there was a question on an exam. What is the most important part of the body? And of course, they believed in evolution, which I don't. But the idea says, what is the, what is the most important part of the human body that has aided in the development of man? Let's put it that way. And they had eye, and they had several things, and one of them was the flexible thumb. And I just immediately dismissed that and said, oh, that's ridiculous. Well, that was the right answer, and I was still mad because I thought I'd gotten cheated. But then, as I thought about it more over the years, because I, gr- I held a grudge against that teacher for robbing me of those points for years, and then I read some more stuff that said, yeah, you can't do a thing without a flexible thumb. You can't hold a tool. Without tools, you can do nothing. So even the weaker parts of the body... They're necessary. They're important. Now, when Paul is in his metaphor saying one part can't say to the other part, I don't need you, he's, of course, probably referring to some Corinthians who are holding their spiritual gifts higher than others and saying, we don't need you. You don't do anything. You're just a helper. You just help. You just you just pick up the crumbs off the carpet after the meeting. Well, when Paul says that the weaker parts of the body are necessary, what does he mean by the weaker parts? Well, that's not all that clear. Adam Clark suggests the viscera, the heart, the lungs, the liver, the stomach, they're weaker because if you take them out, the body dies. But if you take you amputate a limb or take an eye out, the body continues to live. So therefore, the viscera are weaker because they can't live on their own. They can't live if they're taken out. I don't, I'm having trouble stating this theory, much less understanding it, but Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that the weaker organs are the organs more susceptible of injury. For example, the brain, the belly, the eye. I think that makes more sense than Clark's idea. So, whatever. The point is, the, the point he's trying to make is clear that people that, are, that don't have a lot of honor in the body of Christ, they're important, they're necessary. You know, every church has one of these guys. Or women, you know, their their klutzes, their failures in their life. They they're living at home with their parents, or they're not getting along with their parents. They're homeless, or whatever. They don't have a boyfriend and a girlfriend. They don't have a job, but they love Jesus. Every church that I've ever seen has got somebody like that. They're important. Jesus doesn't work by the normal rules of human society. First Corinthians twelve verse twenty three. And those parts of the body that we think to be less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have a better presentation. Now, what are the less honorable members of the body? Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this the feet suggests that. Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggests perhaps he, Paul is referring to the belly. The NIV Study Bible suggests that. 
I don't think so. In my opinion, I think he's just repeating himself. He says, the parts that are less honorable, you clothe the great honor, and the unpresentable parts have a better presentation. I think that when he says the less honorable parts and the unpresentable parts, he's talking about the same thing, namely the sexual organs, which you always cover up in public. You cover them up so they have a better presentation. I mean, let's face it, you know, the men and women come to the meeting with no pants on, it's going to look pretty bad. So you cover them up, and by doing that, you give them great honor. So now they have pretty clothes on. And so his metaphor is this, look, there's some members of the body that you don't want to, they don't want to be seen in public, just like the sex organs. They, you know, just don't want to see them in public. But what you do is you put clothes on these weaker members and you let them be seen in public. Now you cover them, in other words. You cover their weakness. You cover their unpresentableness. And you honor them. And you hold them up. We go to 1 Corinthians 12, 24, 25, and 26. Paul continues, But our presentable parts have no need of clothing. That would be like your head, your eyes, your mouth, your tongue. Instead, God has put the body together, together giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. In other words, one of these weaker members, like the sex organs that's covered up, hey, they're just as important as the big shot preacher or teacher or elder in the church. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. I mean, think about it. If you've got a, a lowly thumb, nobody ever sees the thumb and the body. They're always watching the face and listening to the lips speak eloquent, mellifluous words. But then all of a sudden the thumb gets a tack stuck in it or a hammer hits the thumb. Does the tongue and the head and the brain not suffer because of that no it hurts the, it hurts it hurts the head just as much as it hurts the thumb one member suffer we all suffer and if one member is honored all the members rejoice with it and that phrase right there should do away with all jealousy if somebody wins a lot of people to the lord thank god for it don't say oh, i wish i could have led that many people to the lord or somebody gets up and does a great teaching well hey i wish i could have done that we don't think that just be, thank god that somebody did a great teaching here's how john gill puts it quote with an high office, talking about being honored, if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. How honored? With a high office, with great gifts, with a large measure of grace, spiritual light, knowledge and experience, with great discoveries of the love of God, with the presence of Christ and the communion of the Holy Ghost, or with the good things of this life and in heart to make use of them for the interest of religion, the other members rejoice at it. Which is a very fancy way of saying we're all in this together. When something good happens for somebody, let's all praise God for it and not be jealous of that person. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown quote Chrysostom, who comments on the word suffers. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Here's what Chrysostom said, quote, When a thorn enters the heel, the whole body feels it and is concerned. The back bends. The belly and thighs contract themselves. The hands come forward and draw out the thorn. The head stoops and the eyes regard the affected member with intense gaze. Which I think is a really roundabout way of talking about how somebody pulls a thorn out of his thumb. <laughs> but it really emphasizes the point. You stick a thorn in your thumb, the thumb is very important to the head. 1 Corinthians 12:27. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Now you plural, all of you guys or the body, Christ is the head, he directs the body, we serve the body by doing our functional part that our body part does, you are the body of Christ, and individual members of it, 
you collectively are a body and individually you are a particular member, an arm, a leg, hand, whatever. Note that Paul assumes that all the members of the church at Corinth are saved because he says you're the body of Christ and members of the body of Christ. Now, I think that means they're born again. I don't think that it means like some reformed people say that there's a visible church that has unsaved members in it. I cannot see an unsaved person being a member of the body of Christ. I just can't because they're not saved. We go to 1 Corinthians 12 verse 28 and God has placed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, managing various kinds of languages. All right, let's talk about apostles first. We always have to discuss Whenever we see the word apostles, we have to distinguish something. First, they're the capital A apostles, the original 12. And then you got those that came afterwards to set up churches, people like Paul, James, Barnabas. We'll call them little A apostles because they weren't there originally with the Lord and his ministry. When Paul is talking here, I think he's talking about little A apostles. He's talking about people who set up churches. And there's several examples of them. And plus, there's a lot of unnamed apostles, I'm sure, who went out on missionary journeys everywhere setting up churches. Well, let's start in the New Testament talking about the capital A apostles, the original 12, Mark 3:14. He also appointed 12. He also named them apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach. We read in Acts 1, 21 through 22 this, Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, I think this is Peter speaking, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. Peter is saying that those who actually accompanied the apostles in their early ministry with Jesus, that's the ones that are necessary in order to be a, another capital A apostle. So I guess Matthias who was chosen by Lot at that upper room meeting. Matthias was one of the original 12. He took the place of Judas Iscariot, although he was really the 13th. Now let me point out, this is a little rabbit trail here, but many people say that this verse proves that if you're going to be an apostle, you have to see the Lord. Well, that's not necessarily what this verse means. It says it's necessary that one become a witness. Well, that could mean witness in the sense of testifying about the resurrection, and he could have heard about the resurrection from other apostles. Could be. Now, of course, if this substitute for Judas, Matthias, if he was one who accompanied the other apostles during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, the odds are he would have seen Jesus. True. But does that really prove that you have to see Jesus to be an apostle? What about the little apostles? They didn't see Jesus. Now, Paul did. He had visions. He didn't see him bodily. But how about Barnabas? He's called an apostle. When did he ever see Jesus? How about James, the Lord's brother? When did he ever see Jesus? Galatians 1.19 says this, But I didn't see any of the other apostles, Paul says, except James, the Lord's brother. So James, the Lord's brother, is called an apostle? He never... Well, he saw Jesus, but he didn't see him. Well, I guess James saw Jesus during uh, Jesus' life, even though he didn't believe in him. Didn't believe in him until after he died. But how about Barnabas? Let's, let's go to Barnabas. Barnabas never saw Jesus, Acts 14, 14. But when the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, there, Luke, call, Luke, the author of Acts, calls Barnabas an apostle. But when the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, heard it, they tore their garments. So Barnabas is called an apostle. He didn't see Jesus. So I think we've got to be careful about that. The reason I say that is because cessationists love to say, see there, you never saw Jesus, so you can't be an apostle. Well, all an apostle is is a missionary. We got tons of missionaries. This is exactly missionary is the Latin translation for the Greek word apostolos. It means sent one, sent in order to to start churches in various places, 
If we can have missionaries, why can't we have apostles? Why don't we just call them apostles? People really get bent out of shape about that. All right, let's look at some other gifts that are mentioned here. Miracles is mentioned. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles. Now notice that miracles is mentioned in distinction from apostles. Now, what can we draw from that? It means that people who weren't apostles can do miracles. This idea comes from John Gill. Not only apostles did miracles, he says. Often, you know, the reason that this is an issue is because oftentimes people will say that only apostles did miracles because we want to protect apostolic authority. So if somebody can do miracles, he's an apostle, and if he's an apostle, he can write a book of the Scripture. And therefore, if somebody is claiming to do miracles, he might write a book of the Scripture, and we can't have that now, can we? Let me tell you something. I've done miracles. I've had them done on me. I could, I could tell you about them. I won't bore you with, my, with the details, but I have never been tempted to write a book of the gospel. I am totally incompetent to write another book of the scriptures. And likewise with so many other people who've done miracles. That is just hogwash. It all comes from B.B. Warfield, Counterfeit Miracles. I read that book. In fact, it's interesting. He wrote that book. It was He gave the lectures upon which that book was written in, in Columbia, South Carolina, at the same place where I saw miracles over and over again during the charismatic movement and the Jesus movement during that time, which is kind of ironic. There's a gift of managing or administration that other translations have. It's mentioned here in verse 28. That would be what the elders do. That's not a problem. I've already mentioned prophets in a previous audio. I'll mention real quick. Prophecy, prophets have three functions. They can either predict the future, as Agabus did in Acts. They can confirm what God is doing, as the prophets who sent out Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey from Antioch did. Or, or as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 14, they can give a prophecy for edification, exhortation, and comfort. Now, there's only one other verse, one other gift in this verse that causes me problems, various kinds of languages. That's tongues. That's not a problem, really, in saying that. But the problem is, is why does Paul say various kinds of tongues? I mean, what's the difference between one unknown language and another own language? Well, I looked in a lot of commentators, and they say things like, well, Spanish, one tongue is French, you know, various kinds of known languages. But an unknown tongue is an unknown tongue. It's not known. Speaking in the Spirit. So I don't know what that means. All right, now that I have examined the gifts that are listed here in verse 28, we need to deal with an important question is, and that is this, is Paul setting up a hierarchy of importance by using the terms first, second, third? Well, first of all, we have a big problem if that's what he's trying to do because he's just gone to great lengths in the first part of chapter 12 to say that we're all members of the body. There's some parts that are less honorable, but we need to present them with greater honor, and there's, which basically is saying there's not one gift that's more important than another. Some have more public honor given to it, but they're not any more important than the ones that have less honor given. So here we go. We're talking about we're going to rank them now, have more honor. The apostles have more honor than prophets, and prophets have more honor than teachers, and teachers have more honor than miracle workers. I don't think so. The NIV Study Bible points out that Paul's list of spiritual gifts seem to be largely random samples. Random, not first, second, and third. I agree with that. The only place that he does something that might look like a ranking is here in verse 28, 1 Corinthians 12. But the problem is, is the list that he lists here doesn't match other lists. Let's take two, and I'll show you this. 1 Corinthians 12, 8, 9, and 10. 
To one is given a measure of wisdom through the Spirit. Well, there's, oh, excuse me, a message of wisdom. That's a word of wisdom. That's number one in that list. Number one in 1st 12, 28 is apostles. Second in 1st Corinthians 12, 28 is prophets. The second in 1st Corinthians 12, 8 is a word of knowledge. They don't match. The third in 1st Corinthians 12, 9 is faith. The third in 1st Corinthians 12, 28 is teachers. They don't match. The fourth in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 is miracles. The fourth in 1 Corinthians 12, 9 is gifts of healing. They don't match. The fifth in 1 Corinthians 12, 10 is miracles. And the fifth in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 is healing. And I could go on, but it's obviously they don't match at all. And we can look at Ephesians 4, 11. He personally gave some to be apostles. Ooh, apostles. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, apostles, they do match. But the second uh, gift in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 is prophets. The second in 1 Corinthians 4, 11 is prophets. Oh, they do match. The third in 1 Corinthians 4, 11 is evangelists. The third in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 is teachers. They don't match. The fourth in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 is miracles. The fourth in Ephesians 4, 11 is pastors. They don't match. The fifth in Ephesians 4, 11, if you assume teachers is different than pastors, that's questionable. But assume that it is. That's teachers this fifth and fifth in First Corinthians twelve twenty eight is gifts of healing. They don't match. So let's get out of our heads that Paul is setting up a kind of hierarchy here. Now, in my opinion, why he even mentions first, second, and third is because he's talking about a temporal hierarchy, a temporal sequence. If you're going to start a church, well, who starts the church? That's apostles. So he goes first. Then the prophet edifies the church. I, I think I can't prove that. I can't off the top of my head. I can't show that prophets travel with apostles. I've always heard that. I've taken it for, without questioning it. I'd have to go back and prove it. But assuming that's true, then prophets are following apostles as they go around setting up churches. And then of course you got to have teachers to teach once the church has got set up. And so they, they're kind of the foundational gifts. But it doesn't mean they are more important. It just means that they they get things started before all the other stuff kicks in. All the other min, uh, ministry gifts begin to operate. Adam Clark makes the point that the, these first three gift, gifts, apostles, prophets, and teachers, they have more eminence than others. It's just like saying that some members of the physical body have more eminence, more public manifestation, more honor, if you will. The head has more honor than the sexual organs, which have to be covered up. But, even though that's true, no member of the physical body has more importance. I mean, the sexual organs are very important. Without them, you and I wouldn't be here. So they're very important, even though they don't have a lot of public manifestation of honor. And likewise, apostles and prophets and teachers, they're the ones that everybody sees, because they're the ones that get everything started. So maybe that's, what Paul, that's why Paul mentions them first, because they're more public, they have more honor, but they're not more important than anything else. Now, in this list of gifts, the very last one that's listed is tongues. And, of course, people who do not understand tongues and who are opposed to tongues have created an incredible amount of stigma and prejudice against tongues by saying things like Chrysostom, the famous 5th century golden tongue orator and commentator. Here's what he said, quote, Seest thou where he, talking about Paul, seest thou where Paul hath set this gift and how he everywhere assigns it the last rank? See, tongues, oh, tongues are worthless. They're right down at the bottom. Chrysostom is one of the never-ending stream of people who try to denigrate tongues or downgrade tongues. 
right after Paul has said in chapter 12 that every gift is important. Now, in chapter 14, Paul will talk about the abuse of tongues in a public assembly, but that does not mean he is trying to denigrate tongues used privately or tongues used properly in public. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 5a, now I want you all to speak in tongues. Now, if Paul was thinking that tongues are of the last rank and are therefore to be put down, looked down upon, scorned, etc., why would he say, I want you all to speak in tongues? How about 1 Corinthians 14, 18? I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. I mean, really, why does Chrysostom and everybody got to run tongues down? Because, the listen, the abuse does not govern the use. The Lord's Supper was abused, as we see in chapter 11. Did Paul say, quit doing the Lord's Supper because you people are abusing it? Of course not. And he's not trying to say, do away with tongues. And he's not trying to say that, trying to say that tongues are of least importance because they're listed last in this list. As I say, the lists are all different. He just randomly lists things. He's not trying to put a, a rank of value on any of the gifts. They're all equal because we're all in this together, folks. Now, there's one thing before we leave this key verse that I forgot to mention is the fact that Paul mentions prophets and teachers as separate gifts of the Spirit. That shows that prophecy and teaching is not the same thing. I cannot tell you how many trillions of commentators through the years, through the centuries, have said that prophecy is teaching. It is not teaching. Prophecy is a spontaneous revelation a spontaneously spoken revelation that the prophet has on the spot while he's in the church. A teacher's got to go home and study and get his concordance out and get his lexicons out and get his commentators out. And then he's got to pray and say, what does this mean, Lord? You know, he's got to work at it. Prophets don't do that. Jameson Fawcett Brown said the teachers expound the truths already revealed. So the teacher works over the, the text, the scriptures, as he tries to figure out what's been revealed but the prophets give new revelation, which, of course, doesn't contradict the old revelation, but it's new revelation in the sense that it's something that might apply to contemporary circumstances. For example, Brother Joe over there fornicating with his secretary. You know, that's the stuff that's not going to be written in the Bible. That's new revelation. It doesn't contradict the Bible, but it's something new and more relevant to a current situation. We go now to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all do miracles? And, of course, the, those are all rhetorical questions that deserve the answer of no, of course not. Since there's a diversity of gifts, a diversity of gifts, we should not expect one Christian to have all the gifts. That goes without saying. Now, here's a little problem, a little noticed problem. I've noticed it. Some scriptures talk about everybody being a prophet and everybody speaking in tongues, and yet this verse in verse 29 says, are all prophets? No. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and above all that you may prophesy. That's you plural, you may prophesy. Well, it doesn't say that you can all prophesy there, but then we go down to verse 31, 1 Corinthians 14.31, for you can all prophesy one by one. You can all prophesy. How does that jibe with, are all prophets? No. Seems to me we have a direct contradiction here unless we can explain this. And, of course, we know the Bible doesn't have contradictions in it. Well, here's the answer to the problem, in my humble opinion. Paul is not limiting his discussion to one meeting in 1 Corinthians 14.31 when he says you can all prophesy one by one. What he means is that over the course of time you can all prophesy. But in one meeting, by golly, you're going to limit your prophecies. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14.29 he says two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. So there's a limit of prophecies. And so when Paul says, are all 
prophecy means that everybody's not going to prophesy all at once in the meeting. Two or three are going to prophesy, but no more. And by the way, I think two or three is an elliptical expression that just means a few. It could mean four. I don't think it's meant to be taken absolutely literally. It means don't dominate the meeting with your prophecies one after the other where nobody else can speak. But if you, even if you want to take it literally, let's say two or three, that puts a limit on it. That's not all. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 31, you can all prophesy. How do you reconcile that? Again, I say it's because it means eventually, as time goes on, you can all prophesy, but you don't do it all in one meeting. So I think what Paul is talking about here, he's talking about the, the meetings that are being, that are in chaos. And he's saying, look, are all prophets in one meeting? You don't all prophesy, do you? Are all teachers in one meeting? Everybody doesn't teach, do they? In one meeting, you all don't work miracles, do you? Of course not. And of course, Paul, I believe, is assuming that the gifts can be mixed. In other words, it's an apostle can do apostle things, setting up churches, but he can also do miracles. There's nothing that says he, one is gift is exclusive of, of another. An apostle can prophesy. A prophet can help set up churches. A teacher can do miracles. A miracle worker can teach. A miracle worker can evangelize. And evangelists can do miracles. I don't think that there are these rigid categories where people have a gift and can do no other gift. Now, I think that answers it. There is one little problem with my solution when I say that Paul is talking about in one meeting people do, don't exercise the gift all at once. The problem with that is apostles. That doesn't really fit because you're not going to have an apostle doing something in a meeting. He sets the church up. He's not going to be doing anything in a meeting as an apostle. So my scheme doesn't work except for the last three gifts, prophets, teachers, and miracles. But I could very easily say, obviously not everybody's an apostle because not everybody sets up churches. And then we can go to the idea of in the meeting are all prophets, in the meeting are all teachers, or in the meeting are all miracles. We have to do something because Paul said, I want you all to be prophets, but in the meeting there are only going to be two or three prophets. We have to reconcile it. 1 Corinthians 12:30 All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? And of course that phrase all do not speak in tongues is used over and over again ad nauseum to show that everybody can't speak in tongues if they want to. Every Christian who gets saved, baptized in the Holy Spirit can speak in tongues. I have really I have finally had somebody who because tell me no they don't want to do it. Now one but of all the other people that I've ever talked to about this, when about getting filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Holy Spirit, they eventually speak in tongues. They just do. They might not do it right there on the spot. They might do it that night. They might do it two weeks later. And it's not because God loves them more. It's because they open up their closed minds or they don't have their minds closed to start with. And, of course, it's hard to blame people for having closed minds when you have all this bunkum theology, people going around saying, oh, tongues died out in the first century. It's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. I speak in tongues. Well, I speak in English and tongues, but I pray an hour a day, and most of it's with tongues because when somebody has a problem, I can state the problem and say, God, please do that. I'm finished in 15 seconds. But if you really want to pray about a real problem, you know, if you want to keep going more than 15 seconds, you know, tongues is the way to go because then you, the Holy Spirit takes over, prays in a way that you don't know how to pray. The Holy Spirit knows the situation intimately and perfectly. Why not let him pray? Now, of course, you have to cooperate. You've got to set the time aside, and you've got to do it. So it's, it's not like quietism, if you will. But still, it's a, it's a great supernatural aid. So this idea of, oh, don't speak in tongues, because God doesn't. He only loves Charismatics and Pentecostals. He distributes the gifts to them, but he won't distribute the gifts to me because I'm a Presbyterian. I mean, come on. It's ridiculous. What Paul is talking about here is not can everybody speak in tongues 
abstractly. He's talking about in a particular church meeting. In fact, when we get to 1 Corinthians 14, he's going to use that phrase over and over again. In the church, in the church, in the church. This is what he's talking about. In the church meeting, everybody doesn't speak in tongues. Then you have mass chaos, as he's going to tell, say in 1 Corinthians 14. And again, we have this problem of if you say all do not speak in tongues in verse 30, how does that fit with 1 Corinthians 14, 5 when Paul says, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. That's a direct contradiction if you start saying that all do not speak in tongues refers to everybody in the abstract and not in a particular church meeting. Because Paul says, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. And I, again, again, how do I reconcile that verse? The same way I do the prophecy verse. I wish that you all spoke in tongues with an interpretation, but not all in the same meeting. You have to spread it out and give some other people a chance to go. Or he could be, mean, I wish that you all spoke in tongues privately, which is not in the church meeting, in which case there's not going to be any interference one with another. All right, one more point about verse 30. All do not have gifts of healings, do they? Now, this shows that some people are better at praying for healing than others. Now, all of us have prayed for healing because everybody gets sick all the time. My gosh, you know, every time you turn around, somebody's body's breaking down. Listen to prayer requests in, a, in your church meeting the next time you go to church to see how many, of it, how many of them have to do with healing problems. It's one of the most important gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, it's constantly denigrated by the cessationist. Look at all the fakes. Look at all the fakes. Well, hey, if you didn't have a real something real, you wouldn't have a fake, now would you? Instead of looking at the abuse, they ought to look at the use. Usus non abusum abusus non tollet usum. That's the Latin phrase that says the abuse does not bar the use. And that's something that cessationists will be real good to meditate upon, in my humble opinion. I guarantee you, if I ever get s sick with a terminal something or another, or my wife or whatever, I'm going to try to find somebody who has a gift of healing. That's not going to guarantee that I'm going to get healed, but by golly, the odds will improve because Paul says right here, a gift of healing. He's not talking about everybody. He says all do not have gifts of healing, do they? <laughs> now, of course, he could be talking about in one meeting somebody had, and it could be you in a particular meeting, somebody all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit moves on that person and says, boy, I, I, I believe this guy's going to get healed as a gift of faith as well as healing and praise, whereas another person does not is not moved to do such. Again, all that means relying on the Holy Spirit, not on the arm of your flesh or your theologically trained, narrow mind. Not that I'm against theology. I love theology, but you know what I mean. We go to verse 31 in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul continues, But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. Oh, the greater gifts? I thought he's just spent the better part of chapter 12 saying there aren't any greater gifts. That all the gifts are the same, have of equal worth. So why is he now saying desire greater gifts if they're all equal? Well, I believe that Paul is referring to gifts being used in a meeting. If someone is sick, prophecy is not a greater gift than healing, is it? If someone is poor and distressed, prophecy is not a greater gift than helping. If someone is ignorant of the scriptures, prophecy is not a greater gift than teaching. A greater gift is one that will edify the body, given the body's particular needs at the moment. His elevation of prophecy over tongues, which is mentioned a lot, and which is continued in chapter 14, or started in chapter 14, perhaps. Prophecy is a greater gift than tongues in a meeting. Because why, if you all speak in tongues at once, nobody's edified, nobody knows what's going on. But in a meeting, a prophecy can be heard in your own native language, and therefore it's a greater gift for the meeting. But in one's private prayer life, what's the greater gift? Prophecy? Why would you prophesy to yourself? You speak in tongues to yourself privately, privately, the tongues of the greater is the greater gift. 
Now let me show you a logical problem here if by saying, ah, Paul means that there are gifts that are greater, one is greater than another, and tongues is one of the lesser of the gifts. We shouldn't desire that. We should desire greater gifts. That would be prophecy. Okay, let's let's work through that. If you desire the greater gifts, and if you erroneously assume that apostle, prophet, and teacher are the greater gifts, because 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, and 1st Corinthians 12, 28, if you assume that apostle, prophet, and teacher are the greatest gift, and all are not apostles, prophets, and teachers, as Paul says in 29:30, all are not apostles, all are not prophets, then how can you desire the greater gift? Because only a few people are going to be apostles, prophets, and teachers, so how are you going to desire to be an apostle, prophet, and teacher if only a few are going to be an apostle, prophet, and teacher? So why would anybody desire to have a gift they're never going to get? Okay, well, that's my way of, of solving the problem is saying that, desire, that Paul is telling them to desire the greater gifts based on the particular function that's needed in a particular meeting. It's not that apostles, prophets, and teachers are the greater gifts. It just depends on the situation. There is another way of handling this alleged contradiction, and that comes from the NIV's alternate translation of desire. And they have, but you are eagerly desiring, instead of, in other words, instead of making it imperative, they say, they make it a present, but you are eagerly desiring the greater gifts. And what Paul would be doing here is saying, look at here, you're desiring gifts that you think are greater, but I'm going to show you still a more excellent way. This is not a greater gift. It's love, as he goes to the love chapter in verse 13. It's a gift that's operated in love to edify the whole body. That's what the greater gift is. You think that you're looking after the greater gifts, apostles, prophets, teachers, the things that have the greater honor. But oh no, the greater gift is a gift that's operated in love. That might work too. But it's so easy to misinterpret this, easily to desire the greater gifts. Remember, Paul's not saying one gift is greater than another. One gift might have more prominence, more publicity, more public role, but it doesn't mean that one gift is greater than another. His whole body metaphor cuts against that erroneous idea. All right, the more excellent way is the famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. We'll do that next audio. If you enjoyed this one.